I want to jump right in to the book of Romans. And so before we jump into the text itself, uh, please, if you have a Bible, open it and turn there. Romans chapter 1, 1 to 7. If you have a phone, turn there, open it, uh, click to your Bible app, and let's, let's read together the first seven verses of this letter to the church at Rome. All right, let's read. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all who are in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the intro to what has been called the greatest letter ever written. Now, this, this gospel of Romans, if I could call it that, and the reason I call it a gospel letter is because this introduction is just like the outro. The last three verses in chapter 16, they bookend the entire letter with the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And so we've titled this uh, the gospel of grace, this series, because really that's what this book is about. It's a deep theological flushing out or fleshing out of the entire good news of Jesus. Now, by preface, I want to read for you just a paragraph from the German reformer's preface to his commentary on the book of Romans. Martin Luther was alive in the, the 1400s, late 1400s, and early 1500s. Uh, church history has it that 1517, October 31st, he nailed the 95 theses to the castle church door at Wittenberg, Germany. And by that act was the launch or the spark of what we now call the Protestant Reformation. And you sit here as a result of what happened that day, October 31st, 1517. Because before that, there was no divide between the Roman Catholic Church and what is now called Protestantism. Uh, Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterian, Evangelical Frees, uh, Acts 29 Network, Gospel Coalition Churches, and on and on. The Protestants, those who would say we are not Roman Catholic and we are not Greek Orthodox and we believe in the Scriptures. We believe in the five solas of the Reformation. We are Protestants. Well, this letter was, if you will, the fuel that was the initial rising and outworking of the Protestant Reformation, the Gospel of Romans. It changed the world, literally. That's not hyperbole. It literally changed the world. And we sit here 500 years later as a result. And so let me read for you just a few sentences from Martin Luther, the great reformer's commentary on Romans. Just the, the preface. Listen to this. This epistle, epistle means letter, 
is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel and is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. It is in itself a bright light, almost enough to illuminate all the scriptures. Now that's, a, that's saying a lot about this letter. But I want to, from my own experience, say I agree, especially with that last sentence. It is itself a bright light, almost enough to illuminate the whole scriptures. I first cut my teeth on teaching and, and, and learning how to do Bible teaching and how to engage people with the Bible through the, this book, the, the book of Romans, the gospel of Romans, uh, the epistle to the Romans. And I learned so much about the entire Bible by teaching through this letter twice within, I would say, a 10-year period that after this time spent in Romans, 10 plus years, people came to me and were like, so what seminary did you go to? Like, where did you go to school? How did you learn to teach like this? And I didn't go to seminary, and I'm not a pastor. I'm not a preacher. I just, I really enjoy the gospel of Romans, and it's not a gospel. <laughs> I just keep calling it that because it functions like a gospel. It is an epistle. It's one of Paul's letters. But I learned to teach and preach, and I learned about the entire Bible by going through Romans. And, and so from experience, I can say yes and amen. But listen to this. Luther says, not only should you, friends, know it word for word, <laughs> memorize it by heart, but occupy yourself with it every day. That's saying a lot. This, this letter was so encouraging to Martin Luther. Uh, when we get to Romans 1, 16 and 17, we'll talk more about why it was so important to him. But it was the, the door through which God's heavenly realm open to him, this gospel. All right, let's start by just going through verse by verse this introduction. There's a lot here, and I think that we can cover it in about 38 minutes. Matt laughs. I don't think so. Matt, pray for me, bro. Paul. So Paul, we know as Saul of Tarsus, who was radically converted by a literal vision and visit of Jesus Christ. We'll see this in a minute from Acts 26. He was radically changed instantaneously by a sight or vision of Jesus, a real sight, a real showing up. And what does he call himself? How does Paul identify himself? He says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what you have to know. This is a long seven-verse introduction, but Paul had never been to this church at Rome. He didn't found the church. He didn't help to, to plan it. Rather, he is introducing himself to them for the first time. Most scholars think that the, the, the Jews who were there from Rome at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, they heard the gospel preached by Peter on that day at Pentecost and then went back to Rome and began to share this good news, which is the power of God and the salvation, and many believed and a church was started. And so that's what scholars think uh, the origins of this church at Rome was. And so Paul is now here introducing himself to this 
church in the imperial city, in the capital city of the Roman Empire, Rome in Italy. And so Paul says, look, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, the ESV translate that word servant, servant. It's doulos, and it can be easily translated and is often translated slave. Slavery was very common in the Greco-Roman world. One out of three people were slaves. And slaves were not just of one ethnicity, and they were not just of one category like a laborer. Slaves were up and down the economic chart, and a wide variety of ethnicities were slaves. And you could become a slave for many, many different reasons, like falling into debt and not being able to pay off your debt. And so you'd become a slave to the debtor, and you would work off the debt. There was various reasons and and purposes for becoming a slave. But Paul says, I'm going to take that common, known Um, reality 2,000 years ago and apply it to myself. I'm a slave. But he's a slave of a glorious master, Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, I am a servant, I am low, I am under authority, and I am under the authority of the Lord of glory. I am a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Gospel means good news. Literally, that's what gospel means. And gospel is not news about what we need to do to be right with God. Rather, it's good news about what was already done that we might be right with God. News is something to be told and proclaimed. News is not a list of do's. And so Paul says, I I was called by God effectually, powerfully, and I was called to this task to Share the gospel with anyone and everyone who would listen. So let's look at this event from Paul's own words as he stands before King Agrippa on trial with Festus, another Roman authority, right there. And so Paul is making his defense. In connection, I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission of the chief priests. Now, Paul was a Pharisee, one of the strictest, if not the strictest, uh, sects of Jews, and they would follow the law to a T. And Paul hated Christianity so much, he hated Jesus so much, that he, with all his might, decided he wanted to stamp it out. And so he was uh, on a journey to Damascus with authority, commission of the chief priest. And at midday, O king, King Agrippa, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun. How many of you have stared up at the sun ever? Even when you were a kid, you're just like, how long can I do it? You know, I have, or you maybe get five seconds in and you're like, you look around and everything's just fuzzy. Brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, the Aramaic, which is a Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads were sticks with pricks on them that you would drive cattle with. You would get cattle or goats or sheep to move a direction you wanted to by by goading them. And so God is here goading Paul, and Paul is kicking against it, kicking against it, kicking against it. And Jesus says, enough kicking against it, Paul. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. 
So as Paul went out to destroy Christians, those who called Jesus their Lord and Savior, he is now hearing from him. And he hears Paul, as you persecute my people, you persecute me. And Jesus says to him, rise, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. This is why I've appeared, brighter than the sun, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. What you're seeing right now and hearing and what else I'm going to show you as we journey together. Delivering you from your people, the Jews, and from the Gentiles, all other ethnicities, to whom I am sending you, Paul, I'm sending you, to open their eyes. I love it. Paul's mission and commission is to open eyes, implying blindness. Paul, you're going to give sight. Now, ironically, from this event, from this bright light flashing him, what happens to him? He is blinded. He himself needs to be led away by the hand from this event because he himself cannot see. And only later does another servant, a prophet of Jesus, Ananias, have to come and lay hands on him and pray. And something like scales fall from Paul's eyes. And only then can he see, but only then very dimly. Because we learn in Galatians, uh, he says, Galatians, you loved me so much. You received me with so much love that if you could have torn out your own eyes and given them to me, you would have meaning he had terrible eye problems from this event. But isn't it interesting that as he is blinded by this light, he's being commissioned to go and open eyes so that this will result, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, all that Paul heard from Jesus, and we don't really think of it in these terms. Friends, do you realize that when we share the good news of Jesus, and somebody believes, and they turn from whatever ideology or worldview they were believing in, and they turn to the true and living God for forgiveness, they they repent, they turn, they escape Satan. Did you see that? Turn from the power of Satan to God. Ephesians 2 literally says that we are all children of wrath, following the prince of the power of, it, of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We all lived among them at one time, but God, rich in mercy. So people are literally escaping the grasp of Satan and coming into God's kingdom, and they receive forgiveness of sins and a place And he's called to be an apostle. Apostle means sent one. And there were only 12 capital A apostles. Judas defected. Matthias was added. And now Paul here is, if you will, the 13th apostle. He is a capital A apostle writing authoritative scripture. Now, there were other small A apostles, Barnabas, James, the brother of our Lord, Silas. There were many in the New Testament who were called apostles, but they were not capital A apostles, authoritative, prophetic, scripture-writing apostles. Paul is one of those. He had a literal vision of the Lord Jesus Christ and was commissioned by him to go, to be sent. To who? To the Gentiles and to the Jews. 
which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, this verse 2 here, don't fly over it. Here's what it's saying. From our vantage point, we have a 66-book canon, meaning we have a closed Bible, which claims for itself to be the ultimate authority on life and godliness, the creation of all things, and the end of all things, and what the middle's about. That's what the 66 books claim. Totality of worldview. And it claims for itself the highest authority. It says, there is no other truth that can come above this authority, this revelation of Scripture. And so what is being said here is that Jesus, this gospel, was promised beforehand through the prophets. He's talking about the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament. In fact, at this time of writing, the New Testament wasn't even together yet. All they had was the Old Testament. It's amazing. And so what we did for Christmas was we tried to show you a little bit of what's called uh, redemptive history or biblical theology. And I would encourage you, if, if you're new to this, where's the gospel in the Old Testament? Go back to that series. Or if you like, you can go on the new website that just launched last night, and you could go to the podcast section, go to the Theology Applied podcast section, and you could see how the gospel is very clear in the David and Goliath story. Or you could see how the gospel is very clear in the Jonah story. They're gospel stories. But I want to show you one from the father of faith, Abraham. Genesis 12.3, God himself is speaking to Abraham. And in 12.3, he says, I will bless those who bless you. And of him who dishonors you, I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, we need Galatians to be written to understand that this is a gospel promise. But look what Galatians 3, 8, and 9 says, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, non-Jewish ethnicities, all of us in here, I'm assuming, justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, what this is saying is, Abraham, you're going to have a promised child, and that child is going to have another child. And so it's going to look like Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and Jacob's going to have 12 children, and those children are going to have uh, 12 families that extend to tribes. But there's going to be one of your tribes, Abraham, one of your grandchildren, Judah, through whom a king is going to come, a Davidic king. And from that king's line, a lion will be born. The lion from the tribe of Judah, who will be the Lord of glory, made man. And he will accomplish salvation for us. And so God, in this text, in Genesis 12, is saying to Abraham, Jesus is going to come through you. And through you, Abraham... All ethnicities will have a chance to enter in to relationship with me. Now, we could do this all day. We could do this all night because there's so many texts like this in the Old Testament, but we don't read it with gospel glasses on, and so we miss them. But this is just one. And so Paul says to the Romans, 
which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was a descendant of David, according to the flesh. Now, Psalm 1610 is another one. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol in the Old Testament was the place of the dead, the realm of the dead. It was thought to be under the earth. And it was the place where some thought the righteous and the unrighteous went, or where some thought the unrighteous went for sure. And so the psalmist in Psalm 16, it's David, he's saying, for you will not abandon my soul. Now David's writing about himself here. You you won't abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. But if you were to turn to Acts chapter 2 and you were to listen to Peter tell the gospel for the first time, being filled with the Holy Spirit, he quotes this very verse and applies it to Jesus in the resurrection. He said, David surely perished and saw corruption. And so he was writing not of himself, but of Jesus, who did not see corruption, but rather was raised from the dead. And so with the light of the New Testament, specifically Acts 2, we can look back at Psalm 1610, which Peter quotes and says, this was talking about Jesus. David surely is a prophet. And though he didn't know he was writing about his greater son, Jesus, he was. And Peter quotes him and says, this is a gospel verse about the resurrection. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Now, we just just flesh that out. The lion from the tribe of Judah, uh, David's greater son, it was prophesied, your kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. One of your descendants will sit on your throne forever. Uh, Go back into that Advent series just four months ago and listen to a message or watch it called Kingship Fulfilled in Jesus. And you'll learn all about this prophecy being fulfilled to David. Let's go to verse four. And was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power. Why? Because of the resurrection. Now, it was the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And amazingly, that same power, friends, is available to you. In fact, theologically, if you are a Christian, you have that same power that raised this Jesus from the dead living inside of you. Don't believe the lie that says to you, you can't change. You'll never be different. You can't do it. Those are lies from the enemy. And do you know when lies have power? When they're believed. How many lies do we, me too, believe on a daily basis? Do you know what lie has been specifically effective on me recently? In fact, I've been hearing this in my head for years. It doesn't matter. That's a simple lie. Whether I'm preaching a sermon or doing counseling or working behind the scenes on the computer or ordering commentaries for the book, I hear it doesn't matter. None of it matters. And so do you know how I started countering the lie? I started saying to myself, and by way, I think to Satan, it matters to God. It matters to God. And so therefore, I will keep going. 
I know it's a lie that if believed, I am tempted all the time to just stop. Just lay it down. It's not worth it. It doesn't matter. Those are the lies that ring in my head. What are the lies that ring in your head? What are they? Friends, part of the Christian warfare is understanding what phrases, sentences, memories is Satan using to keep you in a cage. You know that they're lies because Scripture directly contradicts them. Whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, therefore, whatever I do unto God matters. What lies are you believing? I'm not inside your head. I don't know. But lies have power when they're believed. The power that is inside of you is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And so he is declared to be the Son of God by this resurrection from the dead. If you will, the resurrection is all the proof we need that he is the Lord. His claims were backed up. He called it beforehand. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days, three nights. And so he calls it ahead of time. And on the third day, he rose. We just celebrated Resurrection Day last Sunday. And it was, and it w- and was declared to be the Son of God. He was who He claimed to be. In power, according to the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay. Lord, friends, means authority. And it's good to see yourself under authority. Listen, our culture is trying everything to get you to believe that you are the highest authority in the world. You are autonomous. You rule your own world. And whatever you want, as long as it's not directly hurting someone else or it's not criminal, you should just express it. Whatever's on the inside, let come on the outside. Express yourself. Don't put yourself under authority. Now, here's, here's the interesting lie. Satan gets you to believe that if you were to say, yes, Jesus is not just Lord, because everyone will say that one day. Doesn't Philippians 2 say at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. Everyone will one day see he is Lord. It's going to happen. And so he's Lord regardless if you want to confess it or not because one day you will. However, how beautiful to say, not only is he the Lord, he is my Lord, my master. Command me, and I will gladly obey. And as Augustine said, command what you will, and grant what you command. Tell me whatever you want me to do, God, but give me the power to do it. According to, to the power 
to the spirit of holiness. Friends, you have that same spirit. You have the power. Don't believe the lies. Shake your head. Okay. (laughs) Help me. Help me, God. Okay. Verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. Okay. Let's start from the back of verse 5. Nations, ethnos in the Greek. What word do we get from ethnos? Ethnicities. Italians, Asians, Puerto Ricans, Africans, Jews, etc. Ethnos, ethnicities. And so here, the idea is Jesus is to be proclaimed and faith is to be uh, exercised in this good news, but then obedience comes from faith. And this is among all nations. All nations. This is an inclusive gospel. No one gets left out. This is for every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every language, every people group. This is the gospel. Through whom we have received grace, unearned, undeserved, demerited favor, and apostleship, meaning sentness, sent on a mission, to what? Bring about the obedience of faith. For what? For the sake of his name, for the glory and honor of Jesus. Now, that phrase, obedience of faith, I just want to drill in there for one minute because we like to put the two against each other. Okay, it's either faith or obedience. But Paul says, no, 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 the obedience of faith. I mean, wait a minute. Is it by works or is it by faith? It's by faith, meaning you just have to trust What is my responsibility? To receive the gift that Jesus won for you. But that receiving of the Lord and the gift of salvation will result in what? Obedience. You see, because this is part of the reason that we are saved. We are saved so that we might do good in the world, that we might glorify Him with our works, that we might change and be transformed and begin to shine as He shines. This is the purpose. Let's look at a few texts very quickly. So if I were to jump later in the testimony of Paul to King Agrippa and Festus, we would have read this. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Now what's he talking about? He says, when I heard this voice, get up, Go, you're going to proclaim me to the nation. He said, listen, I, I was not disobedient. I did whatever the Lord, who are you, Lord? Whatever the Lord said, I went. I was on it. And so in one sense, friends, when we call people to believe in Jesus and to turn from the sin that so easily entangles them, to turn from what is killing them to what will give them life, we are asking them to obey a command, a command of God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And Paul says, when Jesus met me and commanded me, I was not disobedient. And so in one sense, responding to the gospel is obedience. However, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should Repent, meaning turn, and turn to God. Performing deeds, 
in keeping with their repentance. Okay, let's not get confused. We repent, which means to turn from your sin. Let's make it very practical. Let's say you are a thief, as I once was. I got caught twice, uh, more than twice, but twice with the authorities and the police and had to go to fine and pay fines and go to classes and whatnot. Let's say you're a thief and you've not been caught and you're continuing in this practice and the gospel comes to you and you learn from the Ten Commandments, you shall not steal. Or perhaps you're a chronic liar. Whenever it benefits you to bend or twist the truth, you're like, no problem. Self-protection. I'm good at this. Do not bear false testimony. One of the Ten Commandments. In other words, don't lie. So when the gospel comes to you, you turn from those things that you were once doing and you become obedient. You turn from the sin and you turn to God who forgives you. Listen, it's as if the gospel, faith, and repentance are two sides of one coin. They go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. To repent is to turn away from sin, and when you turn and go towards God, you are exercising faith. And as you continue in faith to move towards God, you continue to walk further and further away from the sin behind you, and you become more and more and more obedient. And so our faith proves itself by our changed lives. And this is what Paul is saying here. Look, that they should repent and turn to God. There's the initial act. Performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. In other words, if the faith is genuine and real, there will be a changed life. How many of you understand this experientially? Do you know what it's like pre-Jesus, and maybe it's taken 10, 15 years, but you can look back and say, yes, I am 100% different, and I am becoming more and more and more my true self. Can you say that? I hope you can. Let's look at one more text, a familiar one in James. James, speaking of some who say, hey, look, I have faith. Another person says, I got works. Some will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You want to see faith? Watch me work it out. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. There is a belief in God that could be orthodox but yet demonic. And if you're not keeping in step with the prescriptive texts in the New Testament, the commands to obey, you maybe say, but, but, but I have faith. I believe. The demons believe. So, so here's a, an easy question. It's good to ask yourself, do I have demon faith that is quite orthodox in keeping with the, 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 the primary doctrines? Or do I have genuine saving faith? Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Please. How do I know? Am I desiring rightness? Am I being convicted of my sin? Am I different than I once was? Examine your faith. 
to see if it's genuine. That's what I'm asking you to do. Now, for some of you with very tender consciences, this is hard for you because, man, when I examine myself, I always doubt whether I'm in the faith or not. For you, I want to encourage you, look away from yourself to Christ. Only He can save you. And so now we're in the realm of paradox. So which is it? Do I look to my works or do I look to Christ? Friends, we never look to our works to save us. Your works and good deeds cannot and will not save you. You must look away from yourself totally, 100% to Jesus. And what will result in that will be a changed life. The same faith that saves us is the same faith that enables us to live differently. In other words, we grow and change by faith, not by works. However, what actually happens in real time are good deeds. Truth where there was once lies, paying for something when there was once thievery, forgiving where there was once bitterness and envy, laying down your preferences for somebody else, and on and on and on. We could find these commands in the New Testament. Love your neighbor as yourself. Give generously to the poor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what I don't want you to do, friends, is to look at your good deeds and say, yes, I must be real. No, you look away from yourself to Jesus alone, and the works will follow, and there will be a trail of evidence trailing you your whole life. But if there's no evidence, you should not be so secure. Can you, can you hold those two truths in paradox? Is that possible for you? I hope it is. Because faith and repentance and the acts of repentance, doing good, are two sides of the same coin. We should not pit them against each other. So we're never saved by our good deeds, but our good deeds will always follow genuine faith. Always. It's inevitable. Why? Because the Spirit of God, the one who raised Jesus from the dead, takes up residence within us, and He begins to express His life through us, and you can't not change. You must change. All right, let's move on. Verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what I want you to see here is Paul says to these Italian Roman Christians, you are the ones called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now, that's a theological category, and what it means is this. There is a general call to believe in Jesus. It goes out to everyone and anyone. We tell everyone to turn from their sin and to trust in Him, to turn from your sin that so easily entangles you, whatever you're clinging to for meaning and significance and life and salvation, turn from it to the true and living God, Jesus Christ. We tell that gospel, that good news to people, and we say, by his death, burial, resurrection, he will save you. Now, some believe and some do not. And the ones who do not get the general call, but the ones who believe, they get an effectual 
powerful, irresistible call. They get the call of God, which produces in them new life. Just as Jesus showed up to Paul on the road to Damascus, so these Christians are called to belong to Jesus Christ. There's a text in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, Jews are looking for power and signs. Greeks or Gentiles are looking for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks or Gentiles. But to those who are the called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. To those whom God calls out of the mass of humanity, Jesus becomes both the power of God and the wisdom of God. The called. This is John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father draws them. That word is drags them in the Greek. It literally is used of Paul being dragged out of the temple. Same word. And so this is the call of God. It's effectual to those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Let's look at... Um, this text here. Paul, giving his testimony once again, says this, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, before I was born? Yes. Just like Psalm 139, every one of my days written in your book before one of them took place. Paul says, before I was born, I was set apart for that day on the Damascus road. And who called me by his grace. Now, we, we got to hear the call, didn't we? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He was pleased to reveal, God reveals, his son to me in order that, this is the result, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. So Paul here gets chosen before he's born. He gets called in real time, and the call then results in an obedience. What's the obedience? To go and to preach among the Gentiles. How about 1 Timothy 1, 7 to 9? I'm staying within Paul. Paul wrote all these texts. He wrote to the Galatians. He wrote to Timothy. What does he say to Timothy? God has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. The Holy Spirit gives power, love, and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. He's writing this from prison. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to, you could translate that with, a holy calling. This is the powerful salvation call. Look, who saved us and called us to or with a holy call, not because of our works, but because of his own purposes and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. You could translate that before times eternal. This grace was given to Paul and Timothy and by extension us before times eternal, before the beginning of time, chosen, just like Ephesians 1 says, 
We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now look at this. This is the end of a parable about those being invited to a feast. And many make excuses of why they should not come to the feast. Well, I have this issue and I have that issue and and I bought this and I need to go and take care of that. And so the banquet happens, the feast happens. And there's one who doesn't have wedding garments on. And the master of the feast comes in and says, friend, how did you get in here? And there was silence. And so they take the man and they throw him out and they put him in outer darkness. It's in Matthew 22. You could go read the parable. And the conclusion of the parable is this. Many are called, but few are chosen. Now, what Jesus is referring to here is the first call that we mentioned, the call that goes out to everybody to come to the banquet, come to the marriage supper of the Lamb, come to the feast, come and believe in Jesus. But only those who actually come are the called ones. Who are the called ones? Those chosen chosen before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Predestined, predetermined destiny. Now, I want to end with this text, and I'm out of time. Paul, again, writing to the Thessalonians, he says this to them, for we know brothers loved by God. So what's their identity? They're loved by God chosen. We know you're you're loved by God. You're chosen. How do you know that, Paul? Because our gospel, the good news that we proclaim, came not to you only in word, the general call that goes to everybody. It didn't just go out with general words, but also in power, drag, effectual call, and power, and in the Holy Spirit, and full conviction. Full conviction was they believed. Now, what Paul's saying here is very practical for us. He's saying, we know you're loved by God. We know you're chosen by God. How? Because when we came and told you the good news of Jesus, it didn't just lay flat on the ground. No, it had power. It had full conviction. You believed. So what does that mean? I want to I say this to you. How do you know if you're either one being called by God to believe or if you have already been called and chosen? It's right in the text. Do you want to believe? Do you want to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus for full forgiveness and access into heaven and into right relationship with God the Father himself, the creator of all things. Do you want that? If you want that, and you want to respond, you are chosen. If you don't want that, if you're like, eh, you're not being called. And you with your own free will will stiff arm and resist the general call that goes out to all people. But if you have a sense, I I want, I desire to be forgiven, to have my sins washed away, to have right relationship with God, to be included in the people of God, to have Jesus as my Lord, then you, friends, come. Come and believe. Come and partake. Come and receive forgiveness of sins. 
It could be as simple as this. God, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I need forgiveness. Would you please forgive me of my sins and receive me into your favor and into your heaven? Help me to live for you. It could be that simple. And if you want to do that, and you're feeling drawn to do that, do it. Don't stiff arm. Don't resist. Perhaps God is calling you even now. Believe. What must I do to believe? What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Friends, this is it. This is the power of God unto salvation for everybody who believes. This is what this letter is about. The good news that God has entered in to do something about our sin. He didn't just leave us in our mess. He came and took care of it. He knew we would not run to him, and so instead he ran to us. He knew that we would not come clinging to him, and so instead he comes and he drags us to himself. It's a beautiful gospel, friends. That God is powerful and effective to save his own whom he chose before the foundation of the world. And more of that to come. It's all wrapped up and packaged in this gospel of grace. And so we're going to celebrate this gospel of grace right now by taking communion. And so uh, Eddie and Eugene are going to be coming around. They're going to pass out the communion elements to you. And perhaps today is the day of salvation for you. Perhaps today you're saying, yes, I want to believe. Yes, I feel that inner moving of the Spirit of God. I desire to be forgiven. Friends, take communion today for the first time as a Christian. Respond. Respond and say to yourself, or I'm sorry, respond and say to God, yes, please forgive me. Have mercy on my soul. Forgive me my sins, and he will do so.